0: Some of you old-timers may remember that uh, some of my first contacts with this church, which was Maranatha Church back some ten years ago, was a couple of conferences that I did on the life of David. I've been wrestling with whether to do this again, knowing that I, I would ask, how many of you were here ten years ago? Well, less than half of the folks here this morning and I would not embarrass you or me by asking how many of you remember what I preached ten years ago. In uh, giving that some thought, I do think that it might be wise for us to recover that section of the Word of God. I've really not dealt much with it in all of my years here with you as your pastor. There are two things in the life of David that sort of uh, led me to try to pin the words to this song. One of which was when David went and fetched Mephibosheth from Lodabar, Mephibosheth being Jonathan's son, who was a crippled uh, boy, you know, injured in a fall when uh, they fled at the news of Saul's death. And uh, we find that he more or less was living in hiding up in this faraway town of Lodabar. And David inquires whether there's anyone left of the house of Saul. And I'm sure his servants felt like, well, I think I know why you're asking, because typically when one family took over the kingdom from another, The first item of business was to round up all the surviving males of the previous dynasty and to execute them. So they went and they found Mephibosheth. And they brought him into David's palace and they put him on the floor there in front of his seat. And David says to him, fear not, you're going to come and you're going to live in my house. You're going to sit at my table as if you were one of my sons. And Mephibosheth, his only reply is, What am I that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? And then it's not just a couple of chapters later that God gives David the promises that a man of his seed would sit upon his throne forever and ever. And David goes in and sits before the Lord, the Scripture says, and then he begins to speak. Who am I, and what is my Father's house that thou hast dealt thusly with me? Who am I that you should have done this for me? I believe there's one thing we're going to be asking throughout all eternity is that question. Why me? Who am I?
1: A sinner by my birth, born fifth to die. Within my mouth a curse, my heart a lie. But in God's sovereign plan, He set His love on Bestowed his grace so free. But tell me who am I, that one so in spite of Why, oh, why, should one so great and?
0: Join me over in the book of First Samuel this morning. To the story of the one who said those words. First Samuel chapter sixteen. First Samuel chapter sixteen. Tell you what, I'm going to shed this jacket. I don't think I'm going to have any problem with frostbite this morning. So if uh, y'all are warm, follow my lead. If you would like, First Samuel the sixteenth chapter. I'd like for us to read the first fourteen verses. It is a story. I hope, I trust that you are familiar with First Samuel sixteen, beginning in verse one. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill thine horn with oil and go. And I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with thee, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then call Jesse to that sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spoke, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me, is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his statue, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this one. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel, and Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are all thy children here? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. There he was ready, and of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. The armies had battled for several days without either able to gain an advantage over the other. It was a standoff. Finally, it was decided that one should be chosen from each side to go and fight, one on one, winner take all. Whichever man won, his army would be declared victorious. The two men went and fought until one of them was victorious over the other, and he came back carrying in his hands the body part of his opponent. What does that remind you of? It sounds a great deal, does it not, the story of David and Goliath. But what I have just recounted to you was the story of Chief Washakie, of the Shoshone Indians who in their battle with the Crow neither side could gain an advantage this was just to the east side of the Wind River Range in central Wyoming, neither side could gain an advantage till it was decided that the two chiefs would go fight it out they went up on the top of a flat mountain, a plateau a butte and Washakie came back down from on top of that butte carrying the heart of the Crow Chief in his hands. When you get home, you may go home and dig out a map of Wyoming, and you will see a place just outside of Riverton, Wyoming, called Crow Heart Butte. That was the place that incident occurred. Now, I tell that story because of the remarkable similarity to the story of David and Goliath and to try to impress you with the primitive nature of the day and times of which we are talking. When we typically talk about the nation of Israel, I'm sure the modern-day concept of a sovereign nation comes to our mind, but this is more a nation like the Cherokee Nation. The Indian nations and tribes that were prevalent here in America, the culture and the civilization was very primitive. When we speak of kings, the kings of Israel, oftentimes we think in terms of the kings of the Middle Ages, of the European empires. But we are really speaking more of the warrior kings, chiefs we would call them that were chief because they were the fierce leaders in battle. They could whip everybody else. That is the nature of King Saul. That is the nature of King David. They were not kings that sat in their palace on the throne in their regal robes of royalty. They were fierce warriors leading the army of God into battle against the enemy. Israel at this point in time is little more than just a loose knit confederation of these tribes related by blood and not much else. Men rule them who were called judges. The judges had been in that period of time from, uh, from the days of Joshua up to the days of Samuel. These judges were men that God would raise up from time to time, whom he would call out from amongst their brethren. And he would anoint them with great power. And they would lead the army of Israel in victory against the oppressor. Men like Gideon, Jephthah. Or in some cases, they were just men that could whip everybody else, like a Samson. Samuel... Of whom we read in our text is characterized earlier in 1 Samuel as the last judge of Israel. When he becomes aged, his sons are nothing like Samuel, and the people begin to clamor for a king. The other nations around them have kings, why can't they have a king? Samuel warns them of the consequences of having a king. He'll he'll institute the draft. He'll take your young men into his armies. He'll take of them not only for soldiers, but for servants and your young women as well. He'll take of your vineyards and your crops. He'll make you tithe 10% of the seed that you make from your crops each year. In other words, he'll not only draft the best of your young people, he'll tax you. But in spite of that, the people clamored, Give us a king, give us a king. God declares to Samuel, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. And so God gives them what they want. He gives them a king. And he gives them a king that's just about what they want. A the young man by the name of Saul. I want you to note Saul's description back here in 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. Speaking of Kish, says he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upwards, he was higher than any of the people. What we are being told is that there is not a more handsome young man in all of Israel than Saul, and he is taller than any of the rest. Now, coming from one who is somewhat vertically challenged, I uh, am sensitive to this idea that he's tall. Have you ever noticed that everybody wants to be taller than they are? If I gave you the choice of being taller or shorter than you are, which would you choose? Steve? Yeah, I know, we're sort of built close to the shore here like the ocean. Yeah, we're sort of on the same level here. Why is it that human nature wants to be big? At least, I've become somewhat horizontally challenged in my later years as well. But we don't want to be big in that direction, but we'd sure like to be taller. In other words, saw fits man's picture of what a natural-born leader ought to be. Number one draft choice. Tall, dark, and handsome. B.B. B. Caldwell, the old professor down at New Orleans Seminary years ago, used to say God never called a good-looking man to preach. I know one thing, whenever you find a good-looking man in Scripture, you've got trouble on your hands. Whether it's Saul or whether it's Absalom or whoever it is, find you a good-looking fella, you've got Problems. Saul, at this point in time, in chapter 9, is on, well, you've heard of wild goose chases. He's on a wild donkey chase. His, his father, Kish's asses have run off. and He and a servant are out trying to find them. They're scouring the countryside and can't find them. And the servant suggests, let's go up to the prophet of God, to this man whom in that day they called a seer. A seer was a primitive word for a prophet. And oftentimes... People would go if they couldn't find something, if they wanted some sort of revelation, they would go up to the prophet, and uh, they would generally take something, a gift in their hands to give to them, and perhaps he might have a word from God for them. And so the servant says, let's go up and see this man, this prophet of God, and perhaps he can tell us where the axes are. Well, they go. But God has already spoken to Samuel the prophet, saying... Tomorrow, about this time, there's going to come this fellow, and he's the one that I would that you anoint as king over Israel. Samuel does in a very private ceremony, and then later as Saul leads the army of Israel into victory over the Ammonites, there is a rather public reception of Saul as the king of Israel, and his rule and reign over Israel is thereby secured. But in spite of all that Saul had and all that was given to Saul, he was anointed king, anointing oil poured over his head, the spirit given to him, victory over Israel's enemies was given to him. In spite of all of those things, Saul had deep, deep deep-seated flaws, flaws that would eventually make him unfit to be king over Israel. laws that would eventually cause him to be rejected by God. The kingdom was to be taken from King Saul basically for two failures. The first failure happened rather early in Saul's reign. They were assembled at Gilgal to go into a battle against the Philistines. Samuel had said, Now on such and such a day, I'm going to show up there at Gilgal, and then we'll offer a sacrifice, and then you can go into the battle. Well, the people are gathered around. The Philistines are about to attack. Everybody's shaking in their boots. The people are hiding out here in the thickets and the rocks and the caves. And Saul, in other words, he's looking around, and he's watching his army sort of desert. Everybody's fleeing and shaking in their boots. And he's, you know, Somebody's got to do something. And Samuel, you know, you know, where's Samuel? He said he would be here. And so to use Saul's own words, he forced himself. Talk about a lame excuse. He forced himself to offer the sacrifice that was to be offered by the priest and by the priest alone. In other words, King Saul intrudes into the office Of a priest and does that service to God that a priest and a priest alone was to render. And then a second transgression occurred a short while later. God had remembered what Amalek, the sons of Amalek, the Amalekites, "...had done to Israel as they had come through their wilderness wanderings." You may remember that Amalek had attacked the rear of the procession. He had attacked those who were weak and stragglers. It was that battle, by the way, that Joshua took the army against Amalek. And remember Moses held the rod up on the mountaintop over the battlefield. When he got tired, the arm would go down and Amalek would start to win. And Aaron and Hur got under his arms and propped them up and Joshua won the battle. You remember the story. God told Joshua then, don't ever forget what Amalek has done. And when you get into the land, I'm going to give you, I want you to go take care of him. Well, the time has come for that. God directs King Saul to go fight the Amalekites and to destroy every breathing thing there. Man, woman, child, beast, if it breathes, kill it. It was dedicated to God in the sense that it was accursed All that was of Amalek. Well, Saul takes the army, and he goes and fights the battle. But much like Ford Motor Company's motto, he has a better idea. I mean, why are we killing all these people right, you know? I I think it would be better for us to do something a little religious here. He spares the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, and he spares their king, King Agag. And he brings them back. Now Samuel meets him and says, what is this that you have done? And Saul says, oh, I've obeyed the word of the Lord. And Samuel says, if you have, then what is this noise, this bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen that I'm hearing? And Saul said, oh, that. Well, you see, I have saved the best of the sheep and the oxen to to have a sacrifice to God with. Now, Now think of this just for a moment. God has accursed this, but Saul will take the best of what God has cursed and offer it to God as a sacrifice. For those two transgressions, the kingdom is rent, ripped, torn away From King Saul. And God declares that he will give it to another. We have read in our text this morning of how Samuel goes down to Bethlehem. He goes under the pretense of having a feast there because he knows that if Saul gets wind of what he's about to do, Saul will most likely attempt to kill him. He calls Jesse and his sons to this feast, and we have the rather interesting account of how these seven sons of Jesse, one by one, line up. The oldest first, of course, the biggest. I'm looking young lad, no doubt, but God says, Samuel, this isn't he. I look on things differently than you look. Don't look at how tall he is. Don't look at how big he is. Don't look at how handsome he is. The next son, the next son. Through seven sons, Samuel says, is this all? We've run out of sons here. Are there any other sons? Well, yes, there is one more. You know about low man on the totem pole. He's out in the back 40 watching the sheep. Folks, if you ever watched sheep, it's about as exciting as watching paint dry. I mean, or hair grow. I mean, this this is... Boring, out in Wyoming, you will sometimes come upon the sheep herders that literally watch sheep like they did back in biblical days. Sitting up by themselves on some butte, living out there day in, day out, out there in the prairie with nothing but about a thousand sheep, a couple of dogs and a horse to keep them company. And they sit up there hour after hour watching, just watching. And you will come, uh, Sam, you and Bonnie know what I'm talking about, sheep herders' monuments. Stacks of rocks. That in their boredom, they will stack these rocks, these flat rocks. They'll make a stack maybe a couple of feet high. You'll see them all over the place out there on the prairie. They're sheepherder's monuments. Just to pass the time, they stack these rocks. And I'm told that they can recognize by the way the rocks are stacked who stacked which pile. In other words, sort of like their kilroy was here. just sort of leaving their mark behind on the plain. Well, that gives you some insight into just how exciting a life it is to be watching sheep all day long. David, being the youngest, has gotten the job that's lowest on the totem pole. I'm sure the other sons, when they were growing up, when they were the youngest, they have got stuck out there. Now David's turn. But they fetch him from watching the sheep. And as he stands before Samuel, God says, this is he. Oh, he's a fine-looking little buddy. He's just a boy. Just a young lad, more or less. I, I would guess somewhere around 13 years old. Just a youngster. This is he that I have chosen. And Samuel pours the anointing oil over his head. I want us to analyze. That's what's happened. That's the data. Let's analyze it now for a few moments. What does this mean? What's outside of just being some interesting history, a curiosity piece from times past. What in the world does this mean to me? First, I want you to notice that it is a rather common principle in God's dealings with men that God will reverse what is considered by man to be the normal order of things, He won't do it like man does. In fact, he'll do it the opposite way that man would do it. How often it is that we find, even in the Old Testament, that the first winds up being last, and the last winds up being first. For instance, in the sons of Abraham, Ishmael, the firstborn is not the one through whom the promise will come. It will be the secondborn. Isaac, and in the next generation, among Isaac's sons, twin boys, but it's not the oldest, but the younger, in fact says God, the younger shall or the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated? I've chosen the younger of the two. And on down we go, even you remember when the sons of Joseph are blessed, the crossed hands. The blessing passing to the younger of the two. And in the New Testament, we find that it won't be that first covenant that God makes with man through whom the blessing comes, but the second, the new covenant. It won't be your first birth, but your second birth that is important. It will not be the work of the first Adam, but the second Adam that will accomplish the work of salvation. And so perhaps if we know all that, it won't surprise us too much to learn that it will not be the first dynasty in Israel that God will use. And by dynasty, I mean a family line that reigns on a throne. But that in fact, God will replace the first dynasty, Saul's dynasty, with the reign of of a second. But all of this switching and reversing sort of gives the impression that our God is somewhat fickle, does it not? That he reverses his direction, that he repents of his choices. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you'll turn there just for a moment, this question. I think it's a very important question for us to ask. Does God repent? By the term repent, I mean the literal meaning of the word. Does he change his mind? Here in 1 Samuel chapter 15, after Saul's incomplete obedience in the matter with Amalekite, you'll see in verse 11, 1 Samuel 15 verse 11, God says to Samuel, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. Well, you say, there you are, preacher. Right there in black and white, of course, God repents. He changed his mind. He chose Saul. Saul didn't quite work out like he intended. And now he changes his direction, changes his mind, and says, I think I'll choose somebody else. Of course, God repents. Says so right there. Well, it's not quite as simple as that. Because it's just a little ways on down in this same chapter that is Samuel the prophet talks to Saul about what's happened. Notice in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 28. Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine who is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. In other words, earlier in this chapter, God says, Samuel, Samuel, I've repented. I've changed my mind. And then later in the chapter, Samuel, the same guy God said that to, stands before King Saul and says, God's not like man. He doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. What in the world is going on? It is what theologians call an anthropomorphism. It's a big, long word. I'll try to chew it up for you. An anthropomorphism is to ascribe a man-like quality to God. For instance, I spoke with the children earlier today about the eyes of God. Now, God is a spirit. He has no body, no parts or passion like as we. He has no eyes like we have in that sense. But we ascribe the idea of eyes. When, when the Scripture speaks of the eyes of God that run to and fro through the whole earth, we get the idea. What, what that means is, is that God knows and takes knowledge of everything going on in earth as if he had all of these eyes running around, watching, seeing everything that goes on. Out west, dealing with the Mormons, Uh, they believed, of course, that God the Father has a body, as did God the Son. Joseph Smith, Jr. saw that in his vision, and so uh, they believe in a three persons, a tri-Godhead, but not tri-unity. He looked up and he saw two men standing there, one of which said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. So the idea is God has a body. And they oftentimes try to prove that by pointing out that the Scriptures speak of God's hand, his arm. Christ is sit down at the right hand of God, is he not? Back in the Old Testament, we speak of God blasting with the breath of his nostrils. Well, of course he has a body, they say. I often tried to turn that around on him and said, if that's true, then according to Psalm 91, he must also have wings and feathers like a chicken. Because David says under his wings well, I trust he covers me as a hen with his feathers. Look, the idea is this is an analogy. It's a way of expressing so that we can understand. But may I point out to you that Samuel in his second utterance gives us the reason that God does not repent, that God doesn't change his mind. He says he's not a man. He's not like you. There are two things that cause you or I to change our minds, and only two things. One is lack of knowledge. The other is lack of power. You ladies, they say, you know, changing your mind is your prerogative. But you think back to the process when you go into a store and you're about to buy a dress. You take it up to the counter. You lay it there and suddenly you see that there's a rip in it. A hem has come undone. And you change your mind. I'm not going to buy this. And you take it back and you put it on the rack. Now think about what's happened. What has caused you to change your mind? You've received new information. New knowledge. Had you known it had the rip on it when it hung there in the first place, you wouldn't have ever picked it in the first place. You see, you learn something new. My friend, God doesn't learn anything new. There is no new knowledge, new truth that God is knowing. He is all-knowing. That's what we mean by the term omniscient. He's not learning as he goes. He's not playing chess or checkers with us, waiting to see what move we'll make, and then he'll decide what move he makes. That's how it appears sometimes, and that's why God speaks in this language. To our eyes, it looks like God repents. But oh, if we pry a little deeper, we see that God knew all along. Don't you think? I got in the big hot water one time with some Jehovah's Witness ladies. They were, I don't know how we got in the book of Genesis, but we were debating things and they talking about the creation and Adam and all of this. And I brought up the question. I said, well, don't you believe, don't you think that God knew when he created Adam? Or I think I was calling that Satan. I said, don't you think that God knew? When he created Satan, that he was going to be a devil. Did that catch him by surprise? Did he go, oops? Well they started screaming at me and hollering at me, went out the front door, and never saw him again. I decided, hey, I'm gonna write this down. This is a way to get rid of the Jehovah's Witness. They were calling me blasphemer and they were saying, well, you know, you're you're horrible, you know, you're saying all these bad things And I said, Look, ladies, you're the one that's saying that God didn't know what he was doing when he made Satan. I believe he knew exactly what he was doing. And he created this creature. This cherubim who was created without sin, knowing that he would sin because his purpose required a tempter, He created a man by the name of Judas. Though it would have been better for Judas that he never been born because his purpose required a betrayer. God's not learning new stuff, folks. And he is not thwarted by the obstacles that we place in front of him. Well, I've got to keep going here. But do you understand that this is a problem? What do you mean God was on this road? He was sort of riding Saul. He's riding that horse for a while. And now he's said, I'm going to give up on this one. I'm going to go this direction. My friend, it looks like a new course to us. But as was preached in the book of Acts, known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. No. This is what he intended all along. And then I want you to consider the infractions for which King Saul lost the kingdom. Don't those two episodes sound like rather minor things to you? I mean, they're really not up there with cold-blooded murder or something. In fact, in one case, he's being required to murder or kill some people. Wouldn't call that murder. Doesn't this seem rather picky on God's part? I would say that natural man indeed seems to see no reason why anyone shouldn't be able to offer a sacrifice to God. What does he care? I mean, he ought to be an equal opportunity employer. He can't discriminate. Who said it's just the priest that can do this work? God said. That's who. You see, in the mind of man. He sees no reason why he should not be able to approach God plenty or as he pleases. And secondly, when it comes down to this offering of the best of the Amalekites, why not? I mean, doesn't God like sacrifices? Doesn't he like us to do religious stuff? Well, I, that's what he was doing. I mean, this is, you know, I've got a better idea here. We can turn this whole episode into a religious worship service. Natural man's religion indeed would offer to God in sacrifice the best of what God himself despises and abhors. You see, God just doesn't quite look at things like we look at things. If you don't learn anything else this morning, learn that lesson you want to know how horrible, how big a thing sin is, ask the one who is sinned against. If you want to know what it means to go blatantly into the presence of God unbidden, just uh, talk to O Miriam and Aaron. Back there in the wilderness days when they decided that Moses was taking a little bit too much authority on himself, that they were just as good as Moses, and God spoke Miriam with leprosy, you recall. Korah and his rebellion over the same principle went to hell with their boots on. The earth swallowed them up. Saying, Well, we can do if Moses can do it, we can do it. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu burnt to a cinder for daring to offer to God strange fire what God had not commanded. Uzzah struck dead for daring to steady the ark of the covenant of God. My friend, this may not seem like a big deal to you or me. God obviously sees it as a big deal. This is the infinite, holy God that we're talking about. The God to whom even the heavens and the angels who know no sin or unclean in His sight. Does this seem unreasonable? Oh, then that speaks of our need to get to know God. The God with whom we have to do. May I just point out in passing that the Gospel, what we call the good news, the word of salvation through Jesus Christ, is really a solution to a problem. It is God's wisdom, it's called. It is God showing His wisdom in solving what to man's eyes appears to be an insoluble problem. But my friend, until a man understands the problem, he will never see the glory of the solution. How many of you are familiar with the formula E equals MC squared? I speak almost... Everybody here. Can somebody tell me what that means? That is a solution to a problem. That is at the long end of a tremendous number of mathematical equations. It all boils down to this solution, E equals MC squared. Now, I won't embarrass you, but I dare say some of our kids would know. But most of you that have, uh, over the age of puberty, (laughs) have long since forgotten if you ever knew. What that means. And many men believe the gospel about like you believe E equals MC squared. They've been told it's a wonderful thing. They say, everybody ought to believe this. But they no more see the beauty and the glory of the gospel than you perhaps see the eloquence of E equals MC squared. Because you don't understand the problem. How in the world can the solution be glorious if you don't understand the problem? My friend, natural man doesn't even understand the problem. He doesn't even get the fact of why he can't go bursting into God's office, sit down and put his shoes up on his desk. He has the idea of a God who is created in his own image. He does not understand what sin is. That sin is not just that which hurts somebody else round about him. It may do that, but that's not where the heinousness of sin comes from. That sin is shaking your fist in the face of your sovereign. How dare you tell me what to do? It is rebellion to its core. And it's daring God to do something about it. The least sin is an attempted rape of the throne rights of God Almighty. You don't understand that we are unfit, unclean for the presence of God, fit only for hell, worthy to be damned in that forever, unclean from the top of our head to the sole of our feet, one big, ugly, running, pussy, sore, In the sight of a thrice holy God, we turn his stomach. If the sewer turns your stomach, think of what your sin must look like, must smell like, in the nostrils of a God before whom even the heavens are unclean. And you say, well, it doesn't smell that bad to me. You don't ask skunks how bad skunks smell. You and I have lived our lives in the cesspool of this world. We're used to the stench. Oh, ask God. And that's what his testimony is all about. Now, that's the problem, my friends. And that's where the gospel becomes such an eloquent solution to an otherwise unsolvable problem. How does a holy God put hell-deserting sinners in His holy heaven and be just and right in doing it? A man like Saul never going to understand. Never going to see the beauty of the solution because he just doesn't get the problem. And then notice God's ways are just a little bit different than ours. Back to the fact that when Eliab was standing in front of him, God says to Samuel, I don't want you to look at how tall he is. I don't want you to look at how good looking he is. You see, I look on the heart I look on the inward man, not the outward man. Man is impressed with the outward. God looks at the heart. I appreciate John Bunyan, one of my favorite authors. He was not only a great author, but a great preacher. I appreciate his honesty, many, many stories circulating about him, but one thing I found in his writings that have impressed me much, he made a distinction between gift and grace outward gift, inward grace. And he says a man may stand up in the pulpit and preach like an angel, and there be a fellow sitting back there in the pew that couldn't give you a theological answer to the simplest question you threw out in front of him. But he says that fellow back there in the pew may have a thousand times more grace in his heart than the guy who can stand up here and preach like an angel. It is by grace we are saved, not by gifts. Bunyan said, and this is an interesting thought, that just like a musician may pick up a violin and make beautiful music with it and then throw it in the fireplace and burn it. God may pick up a man and use him outwardly and then toss him in the fire and burn him. Judas cast out devils, healed folks, just like the other disciples. The high priest in Jesus' day according to the Gospel of John prophesied. In other words, God can outwardly work. Balaam stood and gave wonderful prophecies and then died and went to hell. Do you understand what I'm saying? God may pick up a man and use him as his mouthpiece and then dispose of him in the fire. I don't think that's common. But I do appreciate Bunyan for pointing it out. That it's not what we are out here. Not our gifts and our abilities and our talents that sway God, that impress God. It's what we are in here. Man is impressed with the flesh, how tall you are, how good-looking you are. May I just quote a verse from Luke? Jesus said, The things which are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in the sight of God. Think about it. Oh, slick Flashy, talented, able, capable. That's what men get carried away with. Abomination. In God's sight, it's not many mighty, noble, wise that God chooses. Not many. Some, but not many. He's chosen foolish things, weak Things, things that aren't even don't even exist
1: things that are not
0: to overthrow things that are and then finally let's think about old Saul was he saved was he lost i've read many arguments some say he was some say he wasn't. There's evidence that seems to point in both directions. Evidence that you could bring in to try to prove both sides. Well, he either was or he wasn't. There are some things that make us think he might have been. He received the Spirit of God back there when Samuel anointed him, when he turned to walk away from Samuel. Scripture says God gave him another heart. But then there's a lot of things that make us think he wasn't. If we believe in the perseverance of the saints, we've got a real problem with Saul. His visit to the witch at Endor. All of those things. But I'd come back again to quote John Bunyan. He asked the question, Who can tell? Who can tell? The bottom line is, I don't know. I don't know anybody that can say dogmatically this is the way it is. Who can tell? I wonder... If you don't know the answer, can you at least learn from old King Saul? Whoever you are, whoever you be, whatever your credentials, whatever you might think yourself to be, oh, my friends, bow the knee to your God. Obey God. Submit. Seek to please God first and foremost. Oh, you say, Brother Mark, I remember when I've stayed back there and I'm saved and saved, well, I'm just as sure as I'm going to be in heaven as if I was there right now. Oh, my friend, he that thinks he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Oh, I believe in the eternal security of the saints. It's a blessed doctrine. I love it. But let not that doctrine cause your heart to be lifted up with pride, to think that because of all the things that have gone before, then you're just as sure as there, that you don't have to worry about sin anymore, that you don't have to worry about whether your life is pleasing to God. My friend, learn from old King Saul. No, I don't care what you've got going for you. You head in the opposite direction. You'll see the consequences. If we learn nothing else, we learn this, that sin has consequences I don't care who you are I can tell you that it brings sorrow because that's David. it brings judgment at least in temporal things and it may bring eternal damnation. I ask you tonight today are you in Christ? You say, well, Brother Mark, I think I'm pretty close. You know, I've been coming to church all my life, growing up here in this church. We've heard the, I didn't ask that. Well, I think I'm nearly there. I'm, I'm almost, there is just two things. There's in and there's out. The man who is nigh in the final analysis is no better than the fellow who's a mile away. Where are you? Make your calling in election sure, says Peter. Examine your life. Are the fruits of a Christian yours indeed? Does your life manifest what the Bible says that a Christian's life will manifest? Well, I don't mean perfectly. Be the first to admit that I fall on my face. I appreciated Brother Randy's prayer a moment ago. We sin even while we're sitting in these pews. But in the tenor of your ways, do you manifest the fruits of a genuine conversion? Or could King Saul's experience one day Be your experience. I leave you with that. God has given us the solution to the problem of our sin. He has given it to us in the blood of His own Son. He bids us come to Him to enter into a living union with His Son. To embrace Him to become wed to Him in the faith of the Gospel. To become His, part of His body, a member of His living body. That's the invitation. You say, well, I don't know if I want that. i th- I just wanted, you know, I've been sick and I've had a lot of bills. I just needed some help. I want to know if He could He came to save people from their sins. That's why He came. Is that what you want? Do you want to be rid of sin? Oh, yes, I don't want to go to hell. I'm not talking about just the penalty of sin. I'm talking about the presence and the power of sin in your life. Do you want to be free from sin? Oh, have I got a Savior for you. Let's pray. Father, help us to appreciate these lessons from long, long ago. That even as we speak of Old Testament history, we see New Testament principles. May we never forget them. May we not, Father, lose sight of what we've seen this morning. Father, we like to impress men with how much we impress You. And we like to impress You with how much we impress men. Father, show us that this game is a mockery, a denial of Your omniscience, a denial of the fact that that eye sees and knows. Father, may we search ourselves to know whether we are in the faith. And, oh, Father, not that we would try to look for something that is not the true fruit of Christianity, not some sinless perfection that will not enjoy to glory, but just, Father, an honest look at our own heart, at our own profession, at the fruits of our lives. Help us to make that calling and election sure. May we not presume upon Your grace and Your mercy. May we not settle for anything less than a living, vital union with Your Son, Jesus Christ. No matter what we think we are, no matter what others think us to be, may we not settle for anything other than truly knowing Christ in the faith of the Gospel. Thank You that, Father, You have opened our eyes to see the beauty of that solution. And therefore, Father, we can't get away from that old rugged cross. Father, it's the focus point of all we do, of how we live our lives, the glory of what You did there for us. And, Father, it makes us want to cry as David Who am I? Why have you looked upon such a dead dog as I am? Thank you for grace. Thank you for that grace that taught our hearts to fear. Grace that showed us the problem. Grace that brought the dilemma before our eyes. That made us see our sin made us to see what it deserved. And oh, thank You for the grace that relieved that fear, that showed us the solution in the cross of Your Son. Lord, work in hearts today. If there's one here outside Your Son, I pray that this might be the day that You would speak, that light would shine into the darkness of their hearts. This would be the day that You would apprehend that sinner running from Thee. This would be the day that You would crush the opposition. This would be the day that a dead sinner would be raised to life. Do it for Christ's sake, Father. We give You the glory and the praise.